You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. change and the frost on the ground it was me and 20 of my best friends for the 9 a.m. so (laughs) the uh, the other night I was here for our Ash Wednesday service and I was sitting over to the side with my life group I didn't have any responsibilities and so just got to participate and we all sat down and Catherine and Tim and Ryan uh, stood up to lead us and at some point one of them said This service has not been designed with your entertainment in mind. What we're about to do has not been laid out with your comfort in mind. And then they spoke a little longer and continued to say that this service was designed to help us contemplate our own death. That the wages of sin is death. The first sin brought death into the world and because of the curse of sin we will all die as well. And we got to watch as a few minutes later, everyone there lined up to come forward to have ashes put on our foreheads and to have Ryan or Tim look us in the eye and say, you are dust and to dust you shall return, which is just fancy Bible language for you are going to die. And I watched as person after person after person that I love and care about came forward and they said you are going to die and you you are going to die and you you sir you're going to die and everyone else you care about will as well there were little children that came forward at one point and ryan got down on one knee with a smile on his face and a sparkle in his eye and he said (laughs) you are going to die And I thought, you were right. This is not comfortable. (laughs) This is awkward and abrupt and off-putting and alarming and unsettling and true. 100% true and sobering and good for me. But it is not what I would otherwise be doing on a Wednesday night. That's part of the idea of the season of Lent. It's a a set-aside time for repentance, for fasting, for prayer, and for preparation of the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. But for now, it's a time to contemplate our need for a Savior and to zoom out just a bit from day-to-day normal life to think about some things that we might not otherwise consider, especially weighty things. We want for our teaching for the series to match that theme. So I appreciate last week Jake uh, teaching us on fasting to make sure that we're approaching fasting the right way. And today I want to introduce the teaching content for the next few weeks. We're going to talk about what Christians have called the three enemies of the soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We're going to look at the nature of evil both in our society and in ourselves And I'm very aware that this is probably not a topic that you spend lots of time considering. Very few of you, if any, came in this morning thinking, you know what would really help me today is some good insight 
on the world, the flesh, and the devil. I get it. I get it. But that's part of why we even want to talk about it. It's a topic that we wouldn't necessarily think about, and this season of Lent provides an avenue for us to consider some different heavy, weighty things that might even be a little bit alarming or off-putting at first, but I think could be very, very beneficial for us. And if you'll extend just a little bit of trust my way, I think as the series unfolds, you'll actually realize how incredibly relevant it actually is. So we'll start our study in the one place in the Bible where all three are mentioned in the same spot. That's the book of Ephesians chapter 2. So if you want to turn in Ephesians chapter 2, we'll spend our time in verses 1 through 5 today. So if you don't have a Bible, there are some on the ends of the rows, and I'm quite sure a friendly person would be glad to pass one down to you, and then you can get queued up in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. So this is where the early church got the language of the three enemies of the soul, the language that is used to name that sense that, that we all feel that internal struggle between right and wrong, good and evil, and that thing that we see out in society as well. These three influences set up against God and his people, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three enemies of the soul that team up to take us down. Let's read together. The first three verses here, and then I want to talk for a good bit. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul is the writer. He says, And you were dead in the, tres- in the tres- trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what would you say is the biggest problem in your life right now? Biggest frustration, biggest difficulty, biggest obstacle, the thing that causes you the most misery Your biggest struggle, internal conflict, external, either way. What comes to mind when I ask, what's your biggest problem? That thing that's causing you to fail to be the person you know you should be. Maybe you'd say, I need a different job. I work too many hours, it's too stressful, or it's too boring and too insignificant. Maybe you'd say, you need more money. If you had more money, you would be less anxious of a person. Maybe you'd say, if my kids were quieter... I had better listening skills. I wouldn't be as angry as I am. I'd take some of that. Maybe you'd say, I need better opportunities or different education or less stress, better coping strategies, a different life group leader, a different pastor, a different church, a different city, a different president, whatever. So we live in a society that, that focuses almost exclusively on the material and on the physical. So we tend to think our problems are purely physical. And we tend to think the solutions to those problems are purely physical. So if you're stressed out, take a vacation. If you're unhappy in your marriage, then get a new one. Or go to counseling, and if that doesn't work, then get a new one. You're depressed, you're anxious, here's some medicine. Your kids are annoying, get some time away from them. And while these are certainly real problems and obstacles in our lives, the worldview of the Bible offers a more holistic view 
And it says that there's more going on than meets the eye because the Bible opens up for us a whole other dimension of reality, a different lens by which to view good and evil and that tug of war and difficulty we sense in our souls. The assertion of Scripture is that everything you see and sense that's wrong with your lives and with our society actually traces back to the fact that we're spiritually dead and under the controlling power of these three enemies, the world, our own flesh, and the devil. And the deepest problems of your marriages, your financial life, your work, and in the biggest problems of our global economic and political systems, these three enemies are always at work. And they'll be the subject of our teaching content for the next three weeks. So let me introduce them quickly. First, the world. We see the world come up in verse 2, if you want to glance back. In verse 2 it says, In which you once walked following the course of this world. Another example in the Bible where the world is used in this sort of context would be Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul writes there, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. So in these verses, the world means any sinful ways of thinking or living or believing that defy God and then become normalized to those living in that society. I heard uh, one person say it recently, the world is any way that sin is made to seem normal and righteousness is made to seem strange. That's very helpful. The world is any way that sin is made to seem normal and righteousness is is made to seem strange. So I'll give you one example among thousands that I could give you, just so that we're clear on on our concepts. In a, a secular society like ours, we put all of the emphasis on here and now. So everything around us prompts us to seize the day. You only live once. Today is all you've got. So decisions that maximize today at the expense of tomorrow are normalized. Practically speaking, One of the ways we express this is almost everyone goes into debt. We don't believe in delaying gratification. Now, biblically speaking, according to 1 Timothy 6.12, we are to, quote, take hold of the eternal life to which we were called when we made our good confession. So as Christians, we don't seize the day, we seize eternity. Carpe diem is actually false teaching. It's the world We are, as followers of Jesus, to store up treasure in heaven. So accumulation of debt and maximizing our money for the best possible standard of living now is worldly. Yet it's so normal, it's impossible to find people who aren't doing it. It's just everywhere. It's incredibly difficult to find someone who lives intentionally below their means so that they can be more generous and store up treasure in heaven. And that's exactly what we mean by the world. It's incredibly normal to not operate the way that God calls people to operate. That's the world. Second, in Ephesians 2, Paul refers to the flesh. This is in verse 3. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So much, much more to come on this. But the way um, that I like to think about the flesh is actually comes from the African church father, Augustine. He talked about our flesh as disordered desires. So he said that we either love the wrong things or we love the right thing in the wrong order. So for example, it's not bad to love your career, but if you love your career more than your child, 
That's a disordered love that is going to bring about destruction in that child's life and probably in your life and your family's life as well. It's not bad, of course, to love your child, but if you love your child more than you love God, that's a disordered love, and it's going to bring about havoc and destruction in your life. So uh, to continue the, the financial example and pull that thread on through, one of the reasons accumulation of debt has become so normalized is because it plays to our disordered desires for comfort and approval and power and control. So it's not being forced on us. We think we want it. And in this way, the world and our flesh team up against us. The world normalizes something that, we, that gets attached to a disordered desire in us, our flesh, so we think we're getting what we want. We tracking so far? World and flesh. And then number three, the devil. The devil. Look back towards the end of verse two. Paul says, Following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So I need you to not think pointy ears and pitchfork here. You may feel free to delete from your mind Will Ferrell in a red outfit. But when the Bible refers to the prince of the power of the air, that's Bible language for the devil. I need you to think supernatural, personal evil at work to steal, kill, and destroy. And I'm going to ask you just to suspend your dis- disbelief as modern Americans who think everything is purely rationally explainable via physical, material explanations. We'll get here with the devil later, so for today, if you'll just suspend your disbelief. In Scripture, and particularly uh, in Jesus' own words, he says the primary means the devil operates is through deception and lies. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible, he's called the deceiver. Jesus says that lies are the devil's native language. This is the primary means by which he operates, is through deceptive ideas, through lies. So one pastor summarized these three enemies' relationships with each other this way, and I think it's incredibly helpful. He says the way that these three enemies team up is through deceitful ideas, or the devil, that play to disordered desires, our flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. I think that's incredibly insightful and is actually going to undergird a lot of our teaching for the rest of the series. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized by a sinful society. So to continue the financial illustration... Our entire economic system is built in part on the deceitful idea that what we currently have is not enough to be content. So we continue to buy things believing that contentment can be found in purchasing. And we all participate in this, and we talk about our new things that we've bought, subtly encouraging each other into this lifestyle, instead of overtly encouraging each other to find contentment in what we already have. So we've been trained to become consumers of products that we don't need. Or as the saying goes, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. So this dynamic doesn't just negatively affect us as individuals, but it can become institutionalized and systematized into things like slavery or corporate fraud or commodification of other image bearers on the earth and on and on I could go. 
And this is just one of hundreds of examples of how deceitful ideas play to disordered desires that become normalized in a sinful society, yet have the potential to bring death, decay, and destruction into your life and into our society. So I'll give you, that's a big, huge, mega example. I'll just give you a real practical, specific, personal one in my life. You might relate to it and you might not. So I am uh, 37 years old now, and I've, uh, I feel it. I feel my age. I basically, I'm in the, the place in life where I do the same thing every day. It's just where I'm at. So that's why, you know, some of you see me on Sundays, and you're like, hey man, what's new? And I'm like, oh no, I don't, that's not a thing. I don't do <laughs> I don't do that. I don't do new things. Um, I, right now, am taking it one day at a time to avoid a midlife crisis. Every day I don't have a midlife crisis is a win. I, look, I go to bed at night thinking, I did it. All right. We'll see how tomorrow goes, but today, no midlife crisis. So a deceitful idea that creeps into my mind as the day winds down is that if I'll just hurry up and get my kids in bed... And I have three very little kids who always need me or their mom. They are never not in need. And if I can just get them in bed, then I'll finally have a minute to relax and escape, veg out on the couch, watch some TV. And that deceitful idea attaches to a disordered desire in me that wants comfort and escape more than I want to nurture my kids' heart through their bedtime routines. And then the world makes this entirely normal. We've got a multi-billions of dollars per year entertainment industry that everyone is tapped into. And if I don't watch that show, everyone's going to talk about it tomorrow and I'm going to be the one loser that doesn't know what actually happened. And almost every dad in my life group would say this is a, this is a tug of war in their own soul every single night to be present with their children as the day draws to a close, to invest in those opportunities, to go through normal bedtime routines, and then and only then do we turn the page to do something else. And that may not be an example that applies to you. That's fine. That's not even my point. My point is to just show you how this dynamic is at work in big ways and in really small, subtle ways where disordered desires get attached to deceitful ideas and it's normalized all around us. So here's how St. John of the Cross talks about all of this. He said, All the evils to which the soul is subject proceed from the three enemies we've mentioned, the world, the devil, and the flesh. If we can hide ourselves from these, we shall have no combats to fight. So why is the world messed up and why am I messed up? It's because there's evil in us. There are systems and structures and patterns that normalize that evil. And then there is, in fact, a hierarchy of supernatural evil that aggravates and coordinates and manage this, this evil, manages this evil inside and outside of us. And in your life, right now, you are believing deceitful ideas that are attached to your disordered desires that the world around you makes you think is perfectly normal. This is the biggest danger in your life. And we often don't even realize that it's happening. We often are completely unaware of it. In fact, we often think we're getting what we want. And this is part of what the Bible means when it says that we are spiritually 
dead. This is what it looks like to be dead in sin. Like a dead body cannot perceive its surroundings or do anything about them, a spiritually dead person is unable to realize what's happening and see it for what it is. So I'll give you an example that I've used before, and it won't apply to all of us, but it applies to enough of us to, to I think, be relevant. But this is how almost all Americans seem to live their lives, believing the next thing, right around the corner, that's where contentment and an okayness in my soul will be found. If I can just get to the next thing, next level, get this circumstance changed, and we almost never catch on. So I remember this happening with me when I was in middle school. I remember thinking, middle school sucks. This is awful, and everything in my life is going to be okay if I can just get to high school. Everyone in middle school is mean. Everyone's body is weird. If we can just get to high school, that's when I'll be okay. And I finally got to high school, and it was, in fact, better. But it wasn't quite all that I needed it to be. And then it became, okay, well, now I know what the problem is, though. The problem is I, don't, I can't drive yet. And so if I can just get my driver's license, that's when everything will be all well in my soul because I'll be able to drive, I'll have some freedom, all my friends will love me because I can drive them places, all the girls will love me because I can drive them places. This is really where it's at if I can get my driver's license. Got my driver's license and it was in fact better. But it wasn't quite exactly enough and I realized it's because I was still in high school. And what I needed to do was get to college because in college, that's where everyone really starts to enjoy their life and everything is good. And if you can just get to college, then things really do start to click in. I graduated high school and I went to college and it was a little bit better, to be honest with you. I liked it. But I didn't have any money. And this is just how the pattern goes. We go on and on and on. So it's like, okay, I gotta got get out of college and I gotta get a job because then I'll have money. And that's when I'll really feel okay about who I am and my life will fall into place. And we graduate college and we get a job and we realize they want you to go to work all day. <laughs> Every single day and it never stops. And you think this was a huge mistake. I should have stayed in college forever. There's no turning back. I've got to push forward. So let me, let me invest in my career. And you get your, foot, your footing under you in your career, and you think, okay, now all I really need is a romantic relationship. If I could just find the one, the one, the one. <laughs> and you meet someone, and you think, this person gets me. We are never going to fight or argue and Everything about who they are, I just am so glad to preemptively accept and love. I am so happy. And then you get married and you realize you married a sinner, like a huge, big, fat sinner. <laughs> and you think, this is not, this is great, because I really do like this person, but this has not really solved any of my inside problems at all. And you realize, okay, you know what brings a sense of calm and stability to families? <laughs> is babies. I'm pretty sure I have a baby-sized hole in my heart, and if I could just get a baby, then my love will be full. And you have a child, and you bring that little beautiful baby home from the hospital, and it wakes you up the first night, and you think, we should have gotten a pet. 
And now all you can do is think, we've got to get this kid out of our house. (laughs) So 18 years, and that's when everything will be good with me. If we can just get this kid grown and out, then I'll really be living, and then I'll find rest and contentment in my soul. And so you just hang in there for 18 years, and you finally get the children out of the house, and you realize how quiet a house is without kids in it. And how much you actually got adjusted to some of the noise you thought you resented. But it is nice to have some freedom. And so you're like, no, this is still better. I'm glad to have the freedoms that I have. But truth be told, I still have to go to work. And that's the problem. And if I could just get to retirement, then I'll be free. And then I'll be good. And then my soul will be at rest. And do you know what happens to Americans after they retire? Suicide rates and depression rates skyrocket. They don't just rise, they skyrocket. Because if your entire life has been built on the assumption that the next thing is when I will finally find peace and gladness of heart in my soul, once you retire, there are very few life markers left to continue to look forward to. And you realize what you thought was going to bring hope in the future has not delivered and there's nowhere else to turn. And the sad reality is very few people realize this is what they're doing. They don't see it because we are spiritually dead. We rarely catch on to the fact that this is happening. This is why simple solutions in life rarely provide full help. Vacations don't do a lot of good for dead people. Better education is not all that helpful for dead folks. They tend to not learn well. New habits are only so beneficial for someone who is dead. Religious activity and ministry performed by a person dead in sin are like hot sauce on rotten chicken meat. It's dead. You're just putting stuff on the outside. Stress reduction doesn't help dead people. We don't first need education. We don't first need rehabilitation or better government or better parenting or better circumstances or more job opportunities. Those are all great things that we should pursue. But better parenting cannot help a dead person. Dead people need life. And I think it's a pretty fair argument to say unless a dead person gets life, there's not much else that even matters. Nothing else is really of relevance, at least not initially. You see, apart from understanding what the Bible says is actually true about our world and about us and about the situation that we're in and the need that we have, it can be hard to understand why Jesus did what he did. So apart from, apart from what Scripture says is true about me and true about the world, I honestly don't need a Savior. I just need some help. I just need a spiritual pick-me-up. I just need, you know, you can do it, God can help. I need to reduce stress and learn time management and have a mental health day and learn to love myself and realize the strength I already have inside of me. And I need a vacation and I need better circumstances and a better job and a better church and better friends. And all those might be fine and good, especially vacations. I love vacations. But when we're dead, under the power of the devil, deceived by the world and controlled by our disordered desires, none of those things are going to solve our problem. And if we're dead, there's nothing we can do about it because we're dead. Dead people cannot change the fact that they are dead. And so what we need 
is to be saved. Look at verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God. A theologian, John Stott, calls this the greatest two syllables in the English language. That when we were dead, unable to do anything to remedy or fix our conditions, uh, we were helpless, but we were not hopeless. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Notice that all of this is in the past tense. Not will make us alive, but made us alive. This is because Paul's referring to what Jesus already did on the cross He's not talking about a gradual religious process of coming alive where we slowly become a good, God-fearing person. He's talking about something that Jesus already did for you all at once in the past. On the cross, Jesus became our sin. He died a sinner's death. He was treated by God like he was a follower of the devil, a son of disobedience and a child of wrath. And he bore our sin in our place. Jesus gains victory over Satan. He conquers the world. And he's tempted but never sins and in so doing purchases freedom from our flesh for us. And just notice that Paul uses the word saved. And I know Christians get made fun of a little bit for that word. And it can sound a little backwoodsy, especially if you insert extra syllables into it. But I don't know of a better word to describe what Jesus has done for us. He destroys the work of the devil. He overcomes the world and all of its hopeless attempts to find life. He sets us free from slavery to our flesh and he gives us life when we were dead. I, only, I can only think of the word to, saved to describe that. And all of this was by grace, which means I did not earn any part of it and really I had nothing to do with it because I was dead and dead people don't do things. Dead people don't say, I'd like to stop being dead and I think I'll do so. The word dead and that Jesus extends to us spiritual life as a gift we receive. So when it comes to our biggest problems and obstacles and enemies, we don't, we don't need to just be improved or edited or updated or upgraded or rebooted or enhanced. And you don't need to first find yourself or love yourself or improve yourself or hug yourself or accept yourself or find strength within yourself. You need to be saved we need to be forgiven and restored and redeemed and resurrected. We need life. And this is what Jesus has come to offer us. He's overcome the works of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he brings us life where there was death so that these three enemies do not have to be the final story for us. And only from there can we begin to lessen the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil in our lives. So instead of deceitful ideas, we need truth, we need scripture. Instead of disordered desires, we need a reordered desire the Spirit of God puts in us. And instead of what's normalized in a sinful society, we need the new normal of Jesus' vision for life in the family of God. These are some of the ways that we fight. And there'll be a day when, as the scriptures say, Jesus finally puts every enemy under his feet. But that day is coming, it is not here yet. So there's still a fight to be had. That's what we're going to spend our time on as we step into the next few weeks. So that's our introduction. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you came to give us life. I thank you for uh, these hard words. 
but they're beneficial for us because they bring an awareness of what our situation and condition actually is so that we have a greater love and appreciation for what you've actually done for us. So God, we want to pray over these coming weeks as we're fasting as part of our Lent guide together and as we're studying our three enemies and learning to fight. Lord, that you would just use it. That you would use it in our lives, God, that you would build in us self-control and self-discipline by the power of your Spirit that you would continue the work of progressive sanctification in our souls as we seek to lessen the influence of these three enemies in our hearts and minds and in the world around us. And we just ask that you would be at work in our midst and even now as we have some time to reflect and respond, God, and we ask this for your glory and our good. Amen.